so thankful that you're here today. Uh, my name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis in Noblesville. And uh, I have a question for you as we start today. How many of you uh, played a sport or did an extracurricular activity in school? Or if you're a student now, how many of you are doing that now? Most people in the room uh, did that. I played several sports in school, mostly elementary school, because by the time I was in junior high school, I was uh, a little more awkward than the other students I was there with. I was uh, a lot lazier than the other students, and I had a little bit too much uh, extra timber I was carrying around my waist at the time. And so by the time I got into about eighth grade, I wasn't good at sports anymore. But when I was in elementary school, I loved sports. I played uh, baseball. I played football, uh, the old-fashioned tackle kind, where when you got a concussion, you got up and rubbed some dirt on it. Right, something about the magic of that football field dirt that just made everything okay. Uh, but my favorite was basketball. I loved playing basketball. Um, I loved practicing basketball. But if I'm being honest, what I loved most about basketball was having the other kids in the school know that I was on the basketball team. Right? Because isn't it really when we do an extracurricular activity or we play a sport, isn't a lot of that because that's where our identity is tied up in, right? That's, that's where we find our identity. And, and so like the girls who did dance team after school would always wear their pink leotard under their clothes so that when uh, their oversized Frankie Say Relax t-shirt would slip strategically off their shoulder, you would see the pink strap from the leotard and you would ask them about it and say, hey, why are you wearing a leotard? And they would say, well, I'm on the dance team. I do dance after school, and so we have to wear the leotard for practice, so I just have it now because I dance. I'm on the dance team. That's why, right? So it becomes part of your identity. When I was in high school, I was on the debate team, and I didn't usually do this, but a lot of the kids on Friday before we'd have a big debate on Saturday, they would wear business suits to school. Like high school kids would wear business suits to school, girls and guys, and they would, instead of a backpack, they would carry a briefcase around, and their briefcase would have all their notes in it. I'm not making this up. And, uh, and any time during the school day when they had a free moment, they would get their briefcase, and they'd put it on the lunch table, and they'd open it up, and they'd get out their notes from the debate so they could study for the debate. That's what we did. That's the kind of nerd you have as your pastor, everybody. Well, for us basketball players back in elementary school, it was all about the shoes, right? The shoes are what told your fellow students that you were on the basketball team. And I was in sixth grade in 1981 and 82. I know I'm dating myself, but I've got to tell you, the shoes that I wanted were these right here. It was the Jack Lar Intimidator. Now, Jack Lar is not a big name in the shoe business now, but when I was in sixth grade, it was really the stuff, okay? Because remember, in 1982, Michael Jordan was a freshman at the University of North Carolina, like Nike wasn't making basketball shoes. They were making running shoes, and, uh, and sometimes kids would wear them to school for fun, right? But they weren't making basketball shoes. Nobody could have predicted the impact that Michael Jordan would have on basketball, let alone on the shoe world. But these were the first that I remember. Some shoe nerd in the room will correct me after this sermon, I'm sure. These were the first that I remember high-top leather basketball shoe, the Jacklar Intimidators, and all the cool kids on the basketball team had them. Now, if you weren't a cool kid and you were on the basketball team, you wore Converse Chuck Taylors, right? But those were our parents' shoes, and they were canvas. They weren't leather, right? Now, the problem with the Jacklar Intimidator was they cost $50. The Chuck Taylors cost $15 in low top and $18 in high top. And so when you had to go buy shoes for basketball, if you grew up in an area where maybe you weren't quite as um, financially 
secure as some of the other kids in our school. I mean, even $18 for a pair of high tops was a lot to pay. Well, so a friend of mine once, Dan, Dan came to school one day. Uh, the, the, the big influencer on the basketball team, I have to tell you, his name was Rick. And Rick, had the, he was the first one to have the Jack Lars, and then all the other kids started to get them. And uh, he would kind of poke fun at the kids who didn't have them. And so for a lot of reasons now, I had to have them because one, they made you run faster and jump higher and shoot better. Two, um, the kids in school would know you're on the basketball team if you had them. And three, I didn't want Rick poking fun at me anymore. And so my friend Dan came to school in a pair one day. He wasn't even on the basketball team. I don't know why he bought them. Um, But he said, yeah, they got a shipment of these at Marshall's and they're only $30. Now, you know Marshall's is a perfectly fine place to buy clothing. But when I was in school, what Marshall's was known for was selling irregulars. Does anybody remember this? Irregular, you get a pair of Levi's jeans and they'd have a, a tear right through here with like it's been stitched up again and the Levi's tag would be ripped off the back and they were half price. That was what Marshall's did. So I thought, okay, what is wrong with you? So I, I begged my dad, dad, please can we go to Marshall's? I got a shipment of Jack Lars and the 30 bucks. Can we go there? And, and buy them. So my dad, he's not going to buy these shoes for me, but he took me to Marshall's and we saw them and I tried them on and they were awesome. And they looked so good, you know, with my, with my stonewashed jeans. And, um, and, uh, and dad, please, please can I buy them? I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. I don't, I mean, I got $2 a week allowance. I don't know how I was going to pay him back, but he said, yeah, I'll get them. And so I bought them. And I was so excited. I put them on in the car on the way home. And I said, dad, can we go to the basketball court? Can we go practice? And we did. And you know what? I wasn't any faster. I didn't jump any higher. I sure didn't shoot any better. They didn't noticeably improve my five-inch vertical leap. Um, And so, but that was okay because I still had the real reason that I wanted them, and that was to wear them to school, right? That was going to bring me joy to wear them to school. And so I put the Jack Lars on Monday morning. I walk in the door. One of the first kids I see up ahead is Rick. I've got to show him my shoes. I catch up to him. Rick, look, I got the intimidators. And I pulled up my pants leg and he looked without even breaking stride. He keeps walking. He goes, yeah, I bet you got him at Marshall's. (sighs) This thing that I thought would bring me so much joy, it vanished, right? I didn't realize it at the time, but as I look back on that story now and I think about it, I know God was teaching me a valuable lesson. I didn't think that in sixth grade, but I know it now. We try to find, if we try to find joy in things, we will be sorely disappointed. If we wait for our circumstances to make us happy, we'll never get there. And if we put too much stock in what other people think about us, we'll never experience the kind of joy that God has for us. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 16. We've been studying some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he went to the cross. This is really the last section of Scripture where Jesus is talking to his disciples um, right before he goes to die. I hope you've been reading along with us. If you, don't, if you haven't been, we've got um, a, a reading plan at the Info Hub. You can pick that up on your way out. Uh, but just a reminder, Jesus is uh, on his way to the cross, and he's preparing his disciples to be the ones who are going to carry this message that he's been spreading of hope to the rest of the world. Uh, But at the same time, as we see in today's passage, he's preparing them to deal with the hurt that they're personally going to experience when their friend dies. They've been walking with him three and a half, three and three quarter years. He's about to be gone. And Jesus wants to prepare their hearts to experience, uh, to, to deal with this grief they're going to experience. Now, this is one of the things that I really love about Jesus. His message is good and true and it's universal but he never misses the opportunity to minister to people right where they are. And it shouldn't surprise us then that God's word is like that too, that we can, 
come into a place like this on Sunday and we can read his word, we can study his word together, and all of us get something different out of it based on where we are in life because Jesus loves to minister to people right where they are. And so I know every Sunday some of you come in here ready to be encouraged. Like, I, I need some encouragement. I've even beat down during a week. And some of you come in here ready to have a swift kick in the pants. And we try to have something for everyone that we pull from Scripture. Uh, but we know many of you come in here hurting too. Uh, some of you come in here, you're weighed down by your circumstances. You're weighed down by a recent death or by the divorce or by a job loss or a financial crisis or by the addiction. And, and I think whoever you are, whatever position you're in right now, I think the words of Jesus are going to speak to you today. So let's look at them, John 16. We're going to start at verse 16 and go all the way through 24. I'll read this now, and then we'll kind of break it down here in a couple minutes. It says this, Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, he says this, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she soon forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now, if we read this, remembering the context that these are the last words Jesus are, is going to leave with his disciples before he goes to his death, uh, one of the things that we certainly wanted to look for was a theme. Now, the problem with preaching from a passage like this is we here at Genesis have kind of uh, broken this down, John 15 and 16, into four different sections. So we've covered this over four weeks. It really is one big monologue by Jesus but Paul said to me, Steve, why don't you take verse 16 through 24? And like, you've got to look for a theme in that. But what I want to do is go back to the very beginning of this speech, John 15, 1, and let's look at the themes that are present there. And then I'll see what I see at the bottom of John 16. So the first theme we see uh, in, this, in this whole monologue is the promise of the Holy Spirit. We, we talked about this a month ago. I think we started talking about it on Labor Day at Federal Hill uh, then, then again, we talked about it last week. Je Jesus promises disciples he's going to send another. He's going to send a helper, a counselor, an advocate to his disciples and to us. So that's one promise. That's one theme we see throughout this. Uh, another theme is that we are to love one another. This comes up several times in John 15 and 16. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. It comes up a few times, so it's got to be important, right? Uh, two things to look for if you're looking for what, what is important in the words of Jesus. One, if he repeats it, over and over again, it must be important. And two, if he says something like, very truly I tell you, because it's not saying, hey, I'm finally gonna tell you the truth right now, <laughs> okay? Jesus is always telling the truth. He's saying, I want you to listen to this because very truly I tell you. So he repeats it, it must be important. Third theme I see is that we have to abide in Jesus. 
You know, he says, remain in me. He says it eight times in John 15. Eight times he uses the word remain or abide. But if we just take this last section, uh, John 16, 16 through 33, uh, the second half of John 16, one prominent theme we see in here is joy. When I was reading that, if you counted along, he says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he reminds them, no one will take away your joy. And then he says, ask for whatever you want, and it will make your joy complete. It's almost as if when Jesus is passing from the earth, he's telling his disciples and, um, you know, by, by proxy, he's telling us, you should be the most joyful people on earth. <laughs> you, among all the people, you have the promise of heaven. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit. You'll be loving one another. You'll remain in me. And because of all of these things, you will be known, you, Christians, followers of Jesus, you will be known for being joyful people. You will be filled with joy. And that is so true, isn't it? When people think of Christians, don't they just think of the word joy? Okay, maybe not so much. Why not? Why are, why are we so grumpy? Why are Christians so angry, so melancholy? It's such a cliche that when you think of almost any secular TV show or movie, if there is a Christian character in the show, they are the grumpy one, right? They're the judgmental one. They're the one that nobody likes. Uh, they're the most unjoyful people on the show. Is that art imitating life? Why aren't we more joyful? Friends, can I suggest to you that many of us don't even know what genuine joy means? That, that so often we confuse joy with happiness, and while happiness comes from our circumstances and how we feel and what's going on in our life, that genuine joy comes from knowing Jesus and having confidence that he is who he says he is. And so that's what I want to look at today. Let's work through this passage. I want you to see this is not a pep talk from Jesus, okay? Uh, as we look through these words, I want you to see how Jesus outlines the key to having genuine joy. And if you are a, a process person, if you're a nuts and bolts, per, bolts person, if in your real life you like spreadsheets, you're gonna love this section from Jesus because he is going to give us a step-by-step -step process for how to find joy. You don't believe me, let's look at it. Let's start back in verse 16. He says this, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then you will see me again? Because, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that, he wanted that, they wanted, uh, that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, very truly, I tell you, you will meet, weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. All right? So what I see in here as we read through it is this very clear three-step process to finding true joy. Now, I know some of you won't like that because I, I know some of you think we shouldn't derive processes from God's word. It's inspired. It's, it's holy. It's spiritual. It really should be more touchy-feely, not a step-by-step -step instruction guide. And I'm generally inclined to agree, except that Jesus gives us a three-step process for finding genuine joy in his talk right here. And so the first step for us to understand genuine joy is this. We need to understand God's process. 
I believe what we see in the scripture is a very real God-ordained process to finding genuine joy, and it's one that happens over and over and over again in scripture, but this is the first time I've ever seen it spelled out. And here's the process. Here's what the process looks like. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. It goes from confusion to grief to resurrection joy. Confusion to grief to resurrection joy. Just if you've got your Bible open, look at this passage. Look how Jesus says it. He says, you don't understand what I'm saying now. Confusion, right? You don't understand. You don't understand what's about to happen. You don't get it. You're confused. Confusion. But soon you will grieve while the world rejoices. Grief. Confusion. Grief. And then he says, but your grief will turn to joy. When will their grief turn to joy? Well, what he's talking about is the resurrection here, right? You can see as you read through this passage that the disciples think he's speaking in code. What does he mean by saying, we see you now, but in a little while we won't see you, but then we'll see you again? Well, if you just listen to those words, you can tell what he means. Like Jesus is saying, he's talking about his physical death and resurrection. You know, he's saying, on Friday, I'm going to die, and you won't see me anymore. And then on Sunday, you'll see me again. And what will happen? Your grief will turn to joy. But that's, this is just one scenario, okay? This, I told you this happens over and over again in Scripture. And I know some of you, especially if you're in a tough place right now, you, you'll think, but why, why does there have to be a process? Like, why can't God just, you know, wiggle his nose or spread some pixie dust over everything and make it okay? And uh, there's an answer to that. And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> But I do know there is a process, and we see it in Scripture. It's a process of confusion, death, and grief, and then resurrection joy. Uh, um, Jesus says it himself. He said it earlier in John. He says, and in fact, I think it's in John 15. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a seed. But if it dies, then it can basically be born again and bear much fruit, right? So let me show you some other times in the story of the Bible where this process plays out, and then you can decide if I'm just making this all up or not, all right? For the first one in the Old Testament, we find the story of Jacob and his son, Joseph. Joseph is the favored son. Jacob makes him this special coat that he wears. Uh, the older brothers get jealous because Joseph is the favorite, and they decide to kill him. But at the last minute, they decide not to kill him, that they could actually make some money if they sold him into slavery. And so they do that, but then they tear up his special coat, and they soak it in blood, and they bring it back to Jacob and say, your son is dead, and there's confusion. Right? The kids are like, some of them think they should kill him. Some of them think they should sell him into slavery. They bring him back to Jacob. Jacob's like, what happened? What happened to my son? I thought you were supposed to be watching him. What has happened here? Is he really dead? Is he really gone? And then he comes to the conclusion that, yes, this is his jacket. He's really dead. And then there's grief. We see the sons trying to comfort their father, Jacob. And Jacob says this. He says, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Confusion and then grief. Well, what happens in this story, you probably know it, is over the next years, Joseph prospers as a slave. He gains favor, favor with his master and with God, and eventually he becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And then a famine hits Canaan, where Joseph's family is from, and uh, Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, are all forced to travel to Egypt where there is food, and they uh, go to get food, and this sets up a powerful reunion uh, 
between Jacob and Joseph, father and son. In Genesis chapter 46, we see this. They see each other again for the first time, and you see them throw their arms around one another and weep for a long time. And Jacob says this. He says, now that I know he's alive, I can die in peace. It's as if Joseph has been brought back from the dead, and there is resurrection joy between Jacob and Joseph. You see that story? Confusion, grief, resurrection, and joy. Before that, we read the story of Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham that through Sarah, he will be the father of many nations, but there's confusion. They don't even have one kid, let alone a whole nation full of kids, and they're old. Sarah laughs at God. She laughs at God. There's confusion there. How are we going to have kids when I'm old? Abraham's even older. Like, you know, I don't know. Never mind. I'm not going to make a joke there. I was going to make a joke. Uh, Then Sarah takes matters into her own hands and gives Abraham a servant to have a child with, and she becomes pregnant. And then Sarah gets angry, angry with Abraham and angry with God, and she starts to grieve. There's this grieving process that happens in Sarah's life. But then again, after years, God gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. He makes good on his promise, and it's as if life again has sprung up from the dead, sprung up from grief, and Sarah is filled with joy, and she says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. You see it? Confusion, grief, resurrection, joy. In the New Testament, we see the story of Lazarus. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus' good friend is Jesus. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, but he stays where he is for two days instead of going to heal Lazarus. And by the time he gets to the home, Lazarus is dead. There's confusion. Martha says, Jesus, if you had only come, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't be dead. Where were you? What were you doing? There's confusion. Jesus gets there. He goes to the grave. People are outside the grave mourning. They're weeping. Mary comes to him. She's weeping. Jesus looks at Mary, and probably the first Bible verse you ever memorized in that story, Jesus wept. There's grief. There's grief there. Confusion and then grief. I wonder in your honest moments, do you ever talk to God like that, like Mary and Martha? If you'd only been here, this wouldn't happen. God, where were you? Why did you let this happen? Do you, do you not love me? If you really love me, I wouldn't be in this mess. Do you not care? Right? When we're in a tough situation, confusion reigns. And then sometimes when it doesn't go like we think, we, we end up with grief, right? Jesus gets to this place where Lazarus lays. The crowd outside is mourning. Jesus is mourning. Mary is mourning. But then Jesus calls Lazarus, come out from that tomb. And he walks out, grave clothes and all, and the people are overjoyed. And Mary and Martha throw this giant party for Jesus with Lazarus as the guest of honor. Their grief has turned to joy, confusion, grief, resurrection, joy. Do you see it over and over again in the Bible? You see this story? You see the process? You see what I'm talking about? You believe me now? There's this process, confusion to grief to resurrection, joy. And I think so many times we miss it because we don't like the grief part. Uh, we would rather avoid grief. And so instead, we go from confusion straight past grief, past joy, to just acceptance. If it's going to be this way, I might as well accept it because we want to avoid grief so much. But we, we avoid grief. We also miss resurrection joy. I was at a funeral this week, and... Um, because of what I do, I have the opportunity to probably go to more than my fair share of funerals. Um, 
And almost every funeral, there's going to be grief. There is genuine grief. You'll see some people who are sobbing, crying, weeping over the dead. And then others will have the attitude, well, I'm just glad he's in a better place. And while that's true, and the sentiment of that is true, what's happened in a lot of cases is that person has skipped over the grief part and they've gone right to acceptance. And when they do that, they're going to miss the resurrection joy that happens. I don't think we can ever experience genuine joy because of this process, because of the way it's laid out in scripture. I don't think we can ever experience genuine joy until we experience grief and allow ourselves to feel it. Okay, Jesus goes on, verse 22. He says this, so now with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So once we understand God's process, we need to talk to him about it. Right? So step two then to finding genuine joy is to practice authentic prayer. Authentic prayer. Now, what do I mean by authentic prayer? Well, it's prayer that believes it's making a difference. Authentic prayer, so many times when somebody asks for prayer or we know we need to pray, we will throw up a few prayers. I'll throw up a few prayers for you, right? Or I will say prayer for you. Or we're going to just say our prayers before dinner. We're going to say our prayers before bedtime. But praying isn't just saying. Praying is having a real, honest conversation with God. So, for example, let's say you're in a discussion with someone, and it's about a discussion about something you're really passionate about. Do you just say your piece and move on? Not usually, right? You usually have a real discussion about it. You try to change their mind about it. That's authentic prayer. It's praying in a way that you believe that if you had not prayed, the world was going to go this way. But because I prayed, now it's going to go this way. That's authentic prayer, right? The entire course of your life is going to be changed because God is listening to your prayer and he's going to answer you. And Jesus puts this special caveat on here. He says, my father will give you whatever you ask, in my name. In other words, there's something about the name of Jesus that gives us special access to the throne room of God. Have you ever thought about that? That when we come, when Steve comes before God and says, my prayer, God is listening because he loves me and he cares about me. But when I come before him and I pray in the name of Jesus, that is his one and only son whom he sent to earth to die a death on my behalf. And he's listening in a special way, right? I was thinking about this idea of having access because of this. And I, I remembered a story. I've told this story before. So some of you OG Genesis people just tune out for the next minute. But um, a few years ago, uh, before I was a pastor, I was in the business world. And I was in New York City on business. And I was meeting with um, some publications. We were trying to get some publicity for this thing we were doing. And I had a couple people from my PR firm with me. And um, we had a night in Manhattan and uh, I was looking for, we were looking for a good place to eat. And uh, my, the friends that were with me wanted Indian. And of course, I've never been to New York City. I didn't know Manhattan. I didn't know. Uh, so I uh, did what you're supposed to do. I went to the concierge at the hotel. And I asked the concierge. His name was Stan. Stan was the concierge. And I said, Stan, um, I'm Steve. Introduce myself because I really want his best recommendation, right? I said, um, my friends and I want to go get some Indian food. Where should we go? And he said, ah, oh, 
I have just the place. And he got out his little folder of menus and cards and things, and he gave me the card of the maitre d' at this Indian restaurant. He said, it's, it's very close. Uh, I can call you a cab, but if you'd like, it's only a two-block walk. You can walk there. When you get there, uh, you'll ask for Ravi. Ravi is the maitre d'. Ravi will have a special seat waiting for you right by the window. You'll have a nice view of Central Park. Uh, Ravi, if you tell him that I sent you, you'll get a free appetizer just for going there. And uh, he, he went on to tell me more and more about this restaurant. Well, I mean, I don't know any place in New York City, so I'm going to go to this restaurant. And I walked in this restaurant with my friends, and uh, the door opened, and Ravi was standing right there in, at the desk. And he said, ah, Mr. Wallen, are you Mr. Wallen? Yes, I've been expecting you. Come on in. I've saved our best table for you. And he brought us to this beautiful table with a window that looked out over Central Park. And we sat down. He goes, I've taken the liberty of preparing an appetizer tray for you. Please, it's on me. It's my treat. Uh, no worries. And, and I'm like, what is going on here? And then uh, he, he came out and he told us about the specials and he, he offered us a free drink and he, he, we, we ordered lots of food and it was fantastic. And he said, he kept saying this phrase. He kept saying, hey, because you know Stan, because Stan is your friend, because you're a friend of Stan, and I realized that I was not getting special treatment because of who I was. Ravi didn't know me, but he knew Stan. And because I knew Stan, I had special access that the rest of the world didn't have. And it's that way with Jesus. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you have special access to the throne room of God. And so we need to pray authentic prayers. Now, once we understand that God has a process for bringing joy and we've prayed authentic prayers over the situation we're facing, the last step, third step in this three-step process is to accept God's peace. This is where we get to acceptance. Notice I didn't just say, be at peace. I said to accept God's peace. Again, here is something, there's just something different about God's peace. Look at how Jesus puts it in verse 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, God's peace comes from knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. It comes from understanding that he defeated death. It comes from understanding that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us, but that God raised him from the dead and that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he then sent to live inside you and me when we decide to follow Jesus. We have his Holy Spirit living inside of us. And if God's Holy Spirit can raise Jesus back to life who had been dead for three days, he can handle whatever we're going through. And the Apostle Paul says it this way. He tells us that the peace of God is so big and so strong and so powerful that it transcends understanding. In fact, one translation says, it is far too wonderful for the human mind to understand. That's God's peace. So there's the process, right? It's simple, isn't it? <laughs> Three steps to experience genuine joy. But even though the process is simple, uh, sometimes trusting the process is hard, isn't it? especially when you're hurting, especially when you're doubting. But what I want to remind you today is that our joy doesn't come in our circumstances. If it comes and goes in our lives, that's not joy, that's happiness, right? But followers of Jesus, we should be the most joy-filled people in the world because Jesus said, you won't see me, and then a little while you'll see me again, and while the world grieves, you will rejoice because you have seen me again. What he's saying is when the resurrection comes, you'll see it and you'll be filled with great joy. And guess what, folks? We have seen the resurrection. 
We have seen the helper, the Holy Spirit. We have seen Jesus. And because of that, we should have joy. We should be the most joyful people in the entire world because joy doesn't come in our circumstances, right? See, the truth is most of us have seen this process work out at some point in our lives. We've seen dead things come back to life. We've seen a relationship that we thought was dead that came back to life. We've seen a project or a job that we thought was dead come back to life. We know how what seem like the biggest setbacks in our life can actually be the foundation for the most spectacular comebacks. But sometimes we just doubt if it will happen again. But what if the joy is in the promise? Here's what I mean. What if joy comes not because everything always works out for us, but because we know the one who's working everything out? Like, if that's true, then even when we're in the state of confusion, even when we're in the middle of grief, we can have joy in the promise that the payoff is coming. And when you know the one working in every situation is the one who created you and who is crazy about you and who loves you and sent his only son to die for you and he works all things for your good, well, then you can have genuine joy just because of his promises. I mean, you can sit around and mope and complain and wait for the end of the story, but I promise you, your experience will be much, much better if you just trust that God is going to do what God always does. So today, I want you to go with joy. Go in the promises of God, knowing resurrection joy. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm thankful. Uh, I'm thankful for the process. It's hard to say that sometimes when we're standing, especially if we're standing in a place of confusion or a place of grief and we don't see exactly how things are going to work out, but your promise says that it will work out for your glory and for our good. So God, for me and for the people in this room today, I just, I just ask in Jesus' name, that you would help us to see that your promises are good, that you are gonna continue to do what you have always done and that you're gonna work things out for our good and for your glory. No matter what situation we're in, no matter what we think may be dead, Lord, you can bring it back to life and we can find joy just in the promise of resurrection. Would you help us to believe that this week? Would you help us to go in that promise? In Jesus' name, amen.